Now, as, as Christians, we gather on every Lord's Day because of the fact that we especially remember this morning, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we remember this event not simply as a historical fact, which it is, it is historical fact, but it is historical fact which is of great personal and eternal relevance to us. The information concerning Jesus' resurrection is not merely news, but good news. It is the best news possible to all who receive it in true faith. And as we reflect upon the resurrection of Christ this morning, we're going to do so by considering this great truth as it was laid out by the Apostle Paul in his sermon in Pisidian Antioch, as recorded in Acts chapter 13. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 26 through 39 this morning. And as you're turning there in your Bibles to Acts 13, I'll, I'll just speak briefly to the, the context of what's going on here in Acts 13, and then we'll, we'll consider this excerpt from Paul's sermon there in Pisidian Antioch. The beginning of Acts chapter 13 is where Paul and Barnabas are commissioned and sent out from uh, their church in Antioch in Syria to go out and to preach the gospel and to begin their missionary labors. And they begin those labors in uh, the island of Cyprus. And after taking the gospel to the island of Cyprus, they, they set sail from the coast of Cyprus and they come to what in our terms would be south-central Turkey. They land at a place called Perga. And it's at Perga that a young man who was with him named John Mark uh, deserted them, went back to Jerusalem. And meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas continue on their journey northward overland for about 100 miles from what we would think of as the, the southern coast of Turkey up through the Tarsus Mountains until they reach Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day there, they go into the synagogue. And after the reading of the scriptures, the law and the prophets, they're invited there by the synagogue officials and asked if they have any word of exhortation for the people. And so Paul takes advantage of the situation that has presented itself there by preaching Christ to his fellow Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who were present. And this is the, is the first of Paul's sermons that we have on record. And what we'll see is that this was a sermon that was all about the gospel, all about Christ and his resurrection from the dead and the implications of it. And so what we're going to see here is the, the facts as Paul lays them out and then the practical implication of it. And uh, Paul begins this sermon by, by turning the minds of his hearers back to their history. He points them back all the way to the, the patriarchs and to the, the sojourn of their fathers in Egypt. He talks about the exodus, the wilderness wandering, the conquest of the promised land, the period of the judges. And then he mentions the first kings of Israel, Saul and David. And from David, he jumps straight to Jesus in verse 23. Verse 23, he says, From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And then after he briefly talks about the ministry of John the Baptist in verses 24 and 25, he gets to the heart of his message beginning in verse 26. So let's, let's look there to the text beginning in, in verse 26. Paul preaching, he says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers 
recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now, as we consider this excerpt from Paul's sermon this morning, we're going to do so under two main headings. First, promise and fulfillment. We'll see this, this theme through these verses here. Promise and fulfillment. And then secondly, therefore. Therefore. Now, on this first point of promise and fulfillment, you may have noticed how Paul moves back and forth between saying in one way or another what God had promised or had announced beforehand and then has now accomplished. And so he speaks in verse 27 of those who lived in Jerusalem, how they and their rulers did not recognize the promised Messiah, Jesus, when he came to them, nor did they recognize the utterances of the scriptures about Jesus. That is to say, they didn't understand the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, even though they were hearing them all the time, Sabbath by Sabbath, and therefore not recognizing their Messiah when he was sent, nor understanding the prophecies about Jesus, ironically, they fulfilled those very same prophecies by condemning Jesus. Now, certainly we won't explore all of the prophecies which were fulfilled by them in the condemnation of Jesus, but let's at least consider a few. Think of Psalm 22, verses 14 through 18, where David had spoken prophetically and said, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look They stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. These things were fulfilled while Jesus was on the cross. Think of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. 
burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. And Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10, tells us that those words are messianic. And that when he says he has come to do God's will, God's will that he was doing was that Jesus' body would be once for all sacrificed for us on the cross so that we might be sanctified. This was the will of God which Jesus came to do. Think also of Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 7. The Lord God has opened my ear. I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Our Lord Jesus fulfilled these words as he was on trial, as he was mocked, as he was spit upon, as he was struck by those who were condemning him. And these are just some of the prophecies that were fulfilled in the condemnation of Jesus. Now, obviously, the priests and scribes of the Sanhedrin, they thought, of course, that they had reasonable grounds for killing Jesus. They thought that he had blasphemed by claiming to be the Christ of God, and therefore, they thought he was worthy of death. But if you'll recall the scene when they, when they bring him to Pilate, Pilate asks him some questions, examines him, and Pilate finds no grounds for, for putting Jesus to death. There's no good reason for execution. And therefore, the priests, what did they do? They whipped up the crowd into a frenzy. They got the crowd to demand that Jesus be crucified, and then they twisted Pilate's arm and said, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. That's John 19, verse 12. But Jesus hadn't blasphemed. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. There's no crime at all committed by Jesus, much less any crime that was worthy of death. But they wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to get rid of him by crucifixion. And so they crucified him. And we see that note of promise and fulfillment in regard to this in verse 29. Paul says, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. These things had been prophesied about Jesus. They'd been foretold by the prophets and pointed at by the, the, the types and shadows of the, of the Old Testament dispensation, the Old Testament sacrificial system and so on. And the people of Jerusalem, their rulers, in connection with their Roman overlords, then fulfilled those prophecies and those shadows of the Old Testament times by, by crucifying their Messiah. Jesus died on the cross. He was taken down and was buried. They carried out all that was written concerning him. And to the eye of sight, to the, the eye of flesh, that was it. That was the end of the story as far as Jesus of Nazareth was concerned. You remember those, those two disciples on the road in, in Luke 24 when Jesus was walking with them and was asking them questions and they didn't know it was Jesus risen from the dead and they were so heartbroken. They had been so hopeful that it was Jesus who was going to redeem them. They were hopeful that Jesus was this long-promised Messiah, but he was dead and so surely, surely this can't be him. All their hopes were dashed for a little while until they knew it was Jesus. 
The point is that to the eye of sight, they thought it was all over. But thanks be to God, it was not all over. And so Paul speaks those wonderful words there in verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus subsequently then appeared to his disciples who had come with him from Jerusalem, uh, to Jerusalem, up from Galilee. And then those who, who saw him and were with him after his resurrection then were, were witnesses for him. And if you look at what follows there, Paul goes on uh, to make the point that Christ's resurrection was also the fulfillment of the words of the prophets. It wasn't just that his suffering and death had been prophesied. His resurrection had also been prophesied and is fulfilled. And you see this in verses 33 through 37. And as Paul is making this point, he cites three specific Old Testament passages. Verse 33, he cites Psalm 2, verse 7. Verse 34, he cites Isaiah 55, verse 3. And then in verse 35, he cites Psalm 16, verse 10. Now, let's consider each of these three and see how they point forward to the resurrection of Christ. And so in verse 33, he says that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, now what does this mean? Sometimes in Scripture when we see this language of, of raise up being applied to Jesus, it's, it's used in such a way that it's not particularly focused on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but used more broadly, we could say, in the fact that Jesus was sent. And so uh, both Peter, Acts 3.22, and Stephen, Acts 7.37, appeal to the prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15, that prophecy that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. And that's applied to Jesus, of course. And in that case, the, the raising up of Jesus is not particularly focused on his resurrection from the dead, but more on the fact that God sent Jesus into the world. We could say that it's in reference to Jesus' mission in the world, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And some interpreters, I think, are inclined to take it in that sense here in verse 33, that, that Paul is telling us that Psalm 2-7 is simply speaking broadly to Jesus' mission in the world. Not to say that Jesus was begotten by the Father when he was sent into the world, but rather that the eternal sonship of our Lord, his eternal generation of the Father, was manifested by his mission on the earth. In all that he is and all that he did, while he was on earth, he showed himself to be the Son of God. And while I would agree that that is certainly true, I think it is also worthy of our consideration that this statement here in verse 33 about Jesus being raised up from the dead, or Jesus being raised up in the fulfillment of Psalm 2, falls in a context where Paul is explicitly speaking about the resurrection of the dead. He framed it before in verse 30, God raised up Jesus, and then he follows it up, verse 34, and following in speaking about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so that being the case, I think we would do well to understand Paul's words there in verse 33 as not simply being broadly about the, the sending of Jesus into the world, but perhaps in regard to the sending of Jesus into the world with its climax, its ultimate crowning moment in Jesus' resurrection from 
the dead. And we certainly know the fact that the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God because of what we find in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. I think Calvin's comments here on verse 33 were helpful when he said it this way. He said, Though God began to raise Christ when he came into the world, yet his raising was then at his resurrection, as it were, perfect and full. Because whereas he was humbled before, having taken, as it were, the form of a servant, he did then appear to be the conqueror of death and the Lord of life, so that he lacked nothing of the majesty which was appropriate for the Son of God. And thus, in the resurrection of Jesus, we see the the fulfillment of Psalm 2-7 in that it's in the resurrection that we see that Jesus is proved to be the Son of God. One writer, I think, expressed it well in saying that in the resurrection there was manifested and set forth that which previously lay hidden under weakness, namely, that this person of the Son was begotten of the Father from eternity. And so it's in the resurrection that Jesus is vindicated by God the Father, who in raising him to life, as it were, placed his stamp of approval on his Son. Certainly we remember that at his baptism, the Father had said, this is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And when he raised Jesus from the dead, he confirmed that sentence, not audibly with a voice, but with a demonstration of power. The dead man, Jesus, coming back to life again. And in considering that the resurrection of Jesus demonstrated his deity, we should also remember that though scripture is very clear, that the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and we see that here clearly in our, picture, in our scripture passage, verse 30, verse 34, verse 37, that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Yet the scriptures also testify to us that Jesus raised himself from the dead. And Jesus spoke in advance of this very clearly uh, near the, the beginning of his earthly ministry. If you think back to, to John chapter 2, when he cleansed the temple. And, you know, he's causing quite a stir, overturning tables and driving out animals. And the Jewish leaders are not at all excited about what he is doing. And so they said, what sign do you do? Do you show us as your authority for doing these things. In other words, who do you think you are? Show us, show us some sign that can show us that you have the right to be doing what you're doing here. And how did Jesus reply? He replied in John 2.19 by saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And as the text of John chapter 2 makes absolutely clear, the temple of which he was speaking was the temple of his body. And he says not simply that he will be raised up, but he says that he will do the raising. I will raise it up, he says. And note also the connection in the context of John chapter 2 between him saying that he will raise himself and the question which he was answering. They were demanding a sign. They wanted a sign that would demonstrate his authority for doing what he's doing. He said, okay, you want a sign? Here it is. Destroy this temple, and in three days 
I will raise it up again. That will show you that I have the authority to do what I'm doing here in the temple. And how does Christ's resurrection from the dead, him raising himself from the dead, prove that he has authority to do that? It does it by demonstrating that he is the Son of God. God the Father was placing his stamp of approval on his Son by raising him, and the Son himself, in raising himself, was demonstrating that he is a divine person, that he himself has the power to raise himself, that he is God and therefore has authority in the temple of God. And similarly, Jesus speaks in John 10, 17, and 18 when he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And therefore, one minister declared that when he was raised from the dead, he raised himself, and therefore is often said to have risen again in an active sense, to show it was his own act, that it was he that did it. But that he could never have done himself if he had not been a divine person. And therefore, seeing he himself rose or raised himself from the dead, he thereby most evidently discovered himself to be the one almighty God. And again, it wasn't that the day of resurrection was the beginning of his being begotten from the Father. The Son had been begotten from the Father from all eternity. But in the resurrection, it was made manifest, made open and clear that Jesus is the Son of God. And thus, in Jesus' earthly ministry, and especially at his resurrection from the dead, we see the fulfillment of Psalm 2-7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's scripture number one from Old Testament fulfillment that Paul is citing here for the resurrection. He moves on in verse 34. Again, promise and fulfillment. In the case of, uh, in verse 34, Isaiah 55, 3 is his text. And he says uh, there that the promise that was given in Isaiah 55, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this promise, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David, is in reference to the Davidic covenant, the eternal throne that was promised to David when the Lord told him, 2 Samuel 7, 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And obviously, Jesus is the heir to the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the eternal king who inherits, as it were, that that covenant and that kingdom. And if the Davidic promise of an eternal kingdom is fulfilled in Christ, with Christ being an eternal king, then this makes it necessary that Christ, having died once, and risen again will never die again. That death no longer has any power or hold over him. And therefore we read in Romans 6, 9 that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Similarly, Jesus speaks in Revelation 1.18 and says, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. In other words, this is the, the practical implication of Jesus receiving the holy and sure blessing of David is him standing as the heir of the Davidic covenant, that God raised him up from the dead 
and that he will never again return to decay. He lives and he lives forevermore because he's the eternal king who receives these sure blessings of David. So first, Paul cites Psalm 2-7, verse 33. Verse 34, he goes to Isaiah 55-3. And then in verse 35, he cites one more Old Testament uh, text, which is Psalm 16-10, which we sang earlier this morning. Uh, Psalm 16-10 says, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, when our Lord Jesus died, his soul was separated from his body. We read in John 19, verse 30, that he gave up his spirit. His soul departed and went to the dead. His soul underwent the condition of other men's souls when they die. And in this way, Jesus submitted himself to what has sometimes been called the law of death, that he was, he was really dead, not just kind of sort of dead, but really and truly all the way dead. And he continued in the state of death until his resurrection. And as for his body, it was laid in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and it remained in the tomb from Friday until Sunday. But it did not decay. It did not see corruption because God did not allow it. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The body didn't decay. Jesus rose from the dead. And then Paul proceeds in verses 36 and 37 to continue to explain Psalm 1610. And he does so in a manner that's, that's really reminiscent of the way that Peter uh, did back on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The point being, Psalm 1610 is not about David. David wrote it, but it's not about him. Because David died, was buried, his body remains there in the tomb. His body underwent decay. David has not been raised from the dead. Not yet. Psalm 1610, though, is fulfilled in Jesus because he whom God raised did not undergo decay. And so this is the, the pattern that, that Paul lays out in, in, pre, in his preaching here, is this promise and fulfillment, that God had promised these things, God had fulfilled these promises. As Paul would say elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, as many as are the promises of God in him, that is, in Jesus, they are yes. And this is why Paul can say here in verse 32 of our text, we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children. The fulfillment of these promises is good news. It is the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And this is why Easter Sunday of all Sundays is a particularly joyous time. It is because we especially remember this day that God has fulfilled this promise that he gave to the Old Testament fathers. This is the gospel. And Paul has told them and us very clearly what the gospel is, that it is the good news of the promise that God has made to the fathers and now has fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But, and this is important, Paul did not come all the way from Antioch, which was in Syria, up to the middle of Turkey, to Pisidian Antioch, to stand in the synagogue and give his fellow Jews and God-fearing Gentiles a history lesson. 
The gospel facts are historical, but there's a point to the history. There is a meaning to it. This is a history with implications. It is a history with a therefore. And Paul gives the first and foremost of these implications in verses 38 and 39, which is our our second point for this morning, therefore. And so we read Paul's words. He says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now, if you're using... uh, English Standard Version or New American Standard, uh, you may notice uh, the textual note in verse 39 indicates that that word that's translated there as freed uh, could be more literally translated as justified. And thus the the King James, uh, I think, does does a better job rendering the verse when it says, and by him all that believed are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. In short, what we find then is that verses 38 and 39 demonstrate that the gospel offers to us the forgiveness of sins and the great blessing of justification, which is to be counted righteous in God's sight. And really, isn't that our biggest need? If the history of the world and current events of the world teach us anything, and if our own personal experience teaches us anything, they all combine to teach us this, that the world is a mess. And it is a mess because we ourselves, you and I, and everybody else, have made it a mess. God created it good in the beginning, but Adam chose to rebel against God and therefore set the course for the human race. From that time on, men and women have been born sinners and have willfully run headlong into sin. This is why sin in all of its horrible manifestations is the plague of our existence. This is why sometimes those who are in power abuse their authority. This is why sometimes men and women reject God's good design of who he has created them to be. That's why sometimes husbands, sometimes wives remain uh, are untrue to the solemn vows that they have taken and destruction follows in its wake. That's why lives are eaten up from the inside out, by anger and jealousy and pride and hatred and greed. That's why lives are destroyed by drunkenness, by theft, by deceit, by lies and violence. And these sins harm not only the person who commits them, but they harm others as well. You, you get the point, that sin is the problem that has got us into the mess that we are in. And if we're going to get any help any help at all that goes to the root of the matter, we need help with the problem of our sin. We need to stop sinning, but in our own power we can't. We need to be reconciled with God and have new life, but our own power can't attain that either. This means that if we're going to get out of the mess that we have created by our sin, God has to do something. And if he doesn't, all hope is lost. And did you notice there in verses 38 And 39, that even the giving of the law is not enough to save us. We can't be saved even if God gives us rules to follow. Our problem is that we just can't 
and just won't follow them. And even if we could follow the rules, once we have the law, the law is not going to take care of the fact that we're already sinners, the fact that we have already sinned against God. And so we don't need simply a law to obey. We need a Savior to save us from the law that we have failed to obey. And this is precisely who Jesus is, the one who saves his people from their sins. That's, you remember why he is named Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And that's why this message that Paul was proclaiming there in Pisidian Antioch is good news, because Jesus delivers us from our sins and makes us righteous in God's sight. This is something that we could not accomplish on our own. This is something that we could not even accomplish even having the law of God. We could never justify ourselves in the sight of God. And that's why Jesus came. It's because we need a Savior who is both God and man who will come and die for us and rise again so as to reconcile us to God by achieving for us the forgiveness of sins and giving us righteousness. This is what Jesus did. Paul says in Romans 4 that he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And that's why we read here in verses 38 and 39, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and through him Everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified through the law of Moses. And our passage is very clear concerning the way in which we receive this great blessing of forgiveness and justification. This is accomplished through faith. As verse 39 expresses it, through him, everyone who believes is justified. To be justified, you have to believe in Jesus. To be specific, you have to believe correct, true things about Jesus. You have to believe that he is the Son of God, that he is co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father, and that this eternal Son of God was made flesh and born of Mary, that he lived a sinless life, that he went to the cross and died on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the gospel, and this is the best news that this sinful world has ever heard. And it is the best news that I can possibly bring to you today. But, again, it is historical fact with a therefore. This good news will do you no good if you do not receive it. It will do you no good unless you go to Christ, trusting in him and turning away from your sins in true repentance. Now, some of you, it may be, have not done that. I want you to realize the danger in which you stand. Because apart from Christ, you're still in your sins. They have not been forgiven. Apart from Christ, you are still under the judgment of God. Apart from Christ, you have not been justified, not been counted righteous before a holy God. Apart from Christ, you are headed for destruction. And again, this is why... The gospel is such good news because although we deserve every bit of the judgment and condemnation which we have brought on ourselves, nevertheless, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, as we find in 2 Corinthians 5.19. And thus Paul says here, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, 
that through him the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. And so come to Christ today. Trust in him. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, then allow this reminder of the good news to be a fresh stimulant, as it were, to your Christian life. Look back on Christ's death with gratitude and with fresh resolve to put your own sins to death. Christ, Look back on Christ's death and his resurrection with joy, knowing that through faith you too have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And so, beloved, look back to the cross and the empty tomb and know that it was for you that he suffered. Know that it was for you that he died. Know that it was for you that he rose again. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for these great gospel truths which are so rich here in Acts 13. And Lord, we pray that you would grant to us all true faith, true repentance, that we would come to Christ with all of our hearts, that we would truly repent of sin, and that we would receive this great gift of forgiveness and justification which comes through faith in Christ. Father, we pray that you would fill our hearts with joy, with true devotion to you. We ask your blessing and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.